Uh, if you have a Bible, we're going to be in Acts chapter 14 this evening. I was preparing to not have um, uh, an assistant for the slides tonight, so that's why we have um, our notes on paper instead of the screen. Um, so hopefully that's okay with everybody. Uh, be a little bit of a different teaching uh, style for me, but uh, we've done this before. So um, we'll be referring to our notes uh, periodically throughout our message. Uh, if you want to just keep, keep those um, at hand, we'll... Uh, uh, look at some scriptures that I have printed in your notes so we don't have to turn some places um, and can stay here in Acts. Uh, what we're going to do tonight is uh, read Acts 14, 1 through 7, first off. Um, this is going to be more of a conversation um, that I believe uh, this text sort of inspires um, rather than what we normally do in Acts, which is kind of go verse by verse or take a couple verses at a time. Um, but we'll have a conversation tonight um, because Acts 14 really inspires um, uh, something very important uh, and, and, and gives us, uh, draws our attention to something that's really monumental, um, that there's a threshold crossed in Acts 14 that is so subtle uh, that you may not pay attention to it, and, and I didn't pay attention to it for years, and yet it just kind of jumped off the page at me as I began to prepare for this uh, a few weeks ago. Um, but this passage is really a monumental crossing for church history Yet it also, once again, deals with tension that the uh, early church dealt with, that we continue to deal with in our own way. And I believe that makes this a relevant conversation for us to have tonight um, around this text. So let's uh, start our time by reading or hearing from Acts 14, verse 1 through 7. And we'll back up in a little bit and read some from 13 again. Uh, but I want to set the tone for us by reading this passage now it happened in Iconium that they went together to the synagogue of the Jews and spoke that a great multitude, both of the Jews and of the Greeks, believed. But the unbelieving Jews stirred up the Gentiles and poisoned their minds against the brethren. Therefore they stayed there a long time, speaking boldly in the Lord, who was bearing witness to the word of his grace, granting signs and wonders to be done by their hands. But the multitude of the city was divided part sided with the Jews and part sided with the apostles. And when a violent attempt was made by both the Gentiles and the Jews with their rulers to abuse and stone them, they became aware of it and fled to Lystra and Derbe, cities of Lyconia, to the surrounding region. And they were preaching the gospel there. They continued to preach the gospel there. Uh, so tonight, what we're going to do is we're going to do something that we've done before in Acts uh, that uh, I, I think really Acts lend itself to. Um, I want to talk, look at this text and look at this sort of the, the situation that, that rises out from this experience in Iconium and, and the one that happened previously um, at Antioch. Uh, I want to look at this from a couple different perspectives. Um, so, of course, Luke is the writer of the book of Acts. Luke is writing the history of the early church, so it's important to understand that Luke was writing it um, um, with, uh, with an agenda. Uh, he was writing to tell us the history, but he also was writing to inform us, to educate us, and to equip us to be like those that he was writing about. Um, he doesn't tell every story that happened in the early church age. Uh, this, this book spans some 28 chapters, and it really uh, takes place across 30 years. So uh, while there is a lot in Acts, there clearly a lot more happened, but this is what God chose to inspire and chose to give to Luke to write in this book. So Luke um, the episodes that he includes from church, church history uh, are very specific and work to kind of uh, present a very, very uh, specific version uh, of church history. And, and he is trying to establish precedents that 
we might adopt and uphold and maintain in our own generation. So as you read the book of Acts, uh, we don't really think of Acts as, as a theological book. It's more of a narrative book or read it, but there's clearly some things we learn from reading it. And what we've tried to do in our study so far is pull out those principles and extrapolate those principles and say, okay, this is what the early church believed. And we've seen where God changes their minds at times, haven't we? We've seen where they were on one side of the coin and God said, no, you should be over here. So they're learning and they're growing. And, and what Luke's goal in telling the story is that we might not have to go through those growth, those, those, those pains, right? That we might be able to start off on or get there quicker uh, to the place that they eventually ended up at. So Luke is establishing precedents meant for the church to adopt, uphold, and maintain for generations to come uh, until the kingdom comes in reality. So we seek to read and receive Acts as Luke intended us to read and receive it. Uh, we want to make sure that we're in the right lane, uh, that we could see through the right lens. So again, you can read Acts uh, front to back um, as you would a book, and you can say, well, I'm not trying to really learn anything underneath the surface or try not trying to read between the lines. I'm just trying to hear the story. And you can do that, and that's fine. Uh, but I think as Bible students, we want to make sure that we're looking for the message and we're looking for the, the, what God is trying to communicate to us and equip us with from the text. So that's what I mean by getting in the right lane. Uh, we want to make sure that we're in the right lane to receive the right message and, and hear the whole story. Uh, again, um, here in your notes that I, I kind of put it this way, Luke's story is from and for the church's vantage point. So he's writing from the church's vantage point and he's writing that we might would adopt this particular vantage point. And he's writing about what defines the church inwardly and what defines the church outwardly. So that's why you read in Acts about how the outside world perceived the church, how the outside world looked into the church and how they kind of, you know, uh, uh, received them and, and, and considered them and, and sort of, uh, uh, you know, what they thought of them, right? It was the outside world that gave the church their name or gave Christians their names, right? So we see that we learn what the church is like inwardly, but we also learn what the world thought of the church. And I think Luke believes that to be an important element. Um, Luke is concerned with and focused on the church having the right convictions and that the church might be recognized publicly in the right way. Now, you'll hear some people say, well, I don't care what people think about me. Luke clearly cared what the church, what the world thought of the church. Now, he wasn't worried about what the church thought in terms of defining the church or, or, or justifying the church, but Luke wanted the church to be in the right spirit so that the world might be able to receive the help the church offered. Um, Luke definitely cared what people thought of the church because he wanted the world to understand the church was very important and had a, had a message that was uh, very essential to hear. So we, we'll talk about that and, as we read through our message tonight, and we'll see that even more in the future. So Luke writes Acts both to inform us what we should believe as insiders and how we should behave toward outsiders so they might believe the right thing about us. Um, you've had the wrong uh, opinion about somebody before, the wrong idea about a group before, right? I'm sure we've all been there before. But Luke wants to make sure that the church is doing its job so that there's not a miscommunication from the inside out, if you will. So 
You could break it down in this way, and, and, and here at number three, I've kind of broke it down this way for you. I got these two um, kind of Bible study words. You might not ever use these again, but I think it's, it, uh, I want to just kind of show you the, the connection here. Um, in the Greek, the word church is ekklesia. So that's why uh, we've got these two words that begin with ECC that I think are important. Luke is establishing um, these precedents for the church to adopt. Um, he's giving us ecclesiological um, precedents and ecclesiastical precedents. And again, we won't ever use the wor- those words again, but I just thought it would be you know, helpful to kind of categorize this stuff for you. Um, Luke is giving us what we should believe and how we should behave or what we should practice. Uh, if you ever read the word ecclesial, um, that means things pertaining to the church. Um, ecclesiological refers to our convictions, our beliefs, theology, the things that we believe. And ecclesiastical refers to applying those things, adopting those things, and putting those things as a part of our behavior. You, you've also probably heard the words orthodox and orthoprax. Orthodox means right beliefs. Orthoprax means right behavior or right practice. So you could use those words. Uh, but uh, again, uh, just to show you that connection to the Greek, I thought it would be neat to see that ecclesia and and those words that relate to it. So for this reason, there's usually an attempt, uh, or there's usually an element in every story in Acts, um, every scenario in Acts, where uh, the church is, uh, where we see the church define its position on something, and we see how the church goes on to practice and live out that position. So that's why we've seen um, in the last couple of weeks, the church decide, hey, this is important, and then they do something about it. Um, They're adopting beliefs, and they're doing things because of those beliefs, So we've seen that throughout Acts so far. Uh, This really isn't unique from other books of the Bible, uh, but the unique thing about Acts is that Acts is all about the church. Now, the rest of the Bible, you can make about, you can really focus on individuals, right? We can think, well, that's about me as a person, me as a a Christian individual, or me as a a husband, a wife, or part of a family. But Acts is really concerned about the community, uh, which is, again, why church is essential, and and Christians and churches go hand in hand, or should go hand in hand. Um, Acts really refers to all of us as a part of a group. It, It doesn't allow for us to pull you should not pull things from Acts that don't apply to the church. Yeah, we learn things about our individual walks with Christ, but the main goal is this is teaching me about the church, why the church is important, and how me as a church member should live out these things. And, and that's important to, 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 to keep in mind. Now, where we're at in Acts makes it especially important uh, that we understand the lanes that Luke wants us to be in, uh, that we properly obtain the teaching that he wants to give us. So coming out of Acts 13, we're in the middle of a major shift and a major moment of progression in church history. We've been building up to this for several weeks now. Um, We went on and on about how Acts 13 is the pivotal moment in the church history as Antioch, the church of Antioch, has put legs on the visions laid out in the previous chapters. And herein, we can see some of the ecclesial beliefs turning into ecclesial practices. And I've got some examples here in your notes to show you kind of how we can connect A to B uh, and B to C if if you want to look at number four. Um, So in the last couple of chapters in Acts, we've seen Peter stand up at a church meeting. Remember back in Acts 10 and 11, Peter stood up and said, God has told me we're not just for Jews, we're not just for people in Jerusalem or Judea, but we're for all people in all places. So what was the correlation from that belief? What was the practice that came out of that? Peter 
inspired the church to spin off from Jerusalem and they begin to go around the, the, the Middle East and even beyond the Middle East. And where, what happened? In Acts 11, they found the church at Antioch and Barnabas is sent up to be kind of the pastor of that church. So again, we see belief to practice from thought into action. We, if you follow that progression, the church of Antioch is established on Peter's vision that we're for all people in all places. And Barnabas brings with it his convictions for generosity, his convictions to serve people and to give to those that are in need. So you have these two pillars, this pillar of we're for accepting people, no matter who they are, where they're from, and we're to serve people. So what do you read about there in Acts 11? They're first called Christians because the world recognizes these people as being like Christ. They love like Jesus, they accept like Jesus, and they serve like Jesus. So again, we see their beliefs and we see a correlation in terms of their practice. Tell me what you believe, that's great, but show me how you live it out, that's better. And we see that in Acts. Lastly, the church at Antioch believes that they should continue being a mission-minded church, a mission-focused uh, 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 you know, uh, church. So what happens in Acts 13? The Holy Spirit says, set apart for me Barnabas and, and Paul, and they become the first uh, evangelist to the world beyond the Middle East, uh, to what we call Turkey, to what they called Galatia, uh, often referred to as Asia Minor, but it's the province of Galatia. So when Paul writes the letter to Galatia, um, he's writing to the Galatian churches, which is more than one, which um, the part of Acts that we're in, Acts 13, Acts 14, those are the churches of Galatia, the church in Antioch of Pisidia, which is a different Antioch we talked about last time. The church at Antioch, the church at uh, Iconium, the church at Derby and Lystra are all parts of this Galatian network, sort of like a, a, an, an association of churches that were all part of this network that Paul planted from Acts 13 to Acts 15. So I wanted to show you that so you could see the connection from ecclesial fault and ecclesial practice. Now, as a church, we want to make sure we, make pe we want people to know what we believe but as a pastor, I want it to be as, as important as to how we behave and how we live out those principles. We can go on and on about what we believe all day long, but if we don't do something with those beliefs, we're not really worth much in and of those beliefs by themselves. That's what the Bible pretty much teaches, and, and that's what Acts makes sure that we can't get away from. Um, but along the way, the major subject that uh, has, has come under, uh, uh, under the spotlight um, is how the Jewish people— the Jewish communities are rejecting the gospel with, as Paul goes into these, uh, these Gentile territories, there are Jewish communities in every one of those Gentile territories. He finds the synagogue and his first uh, line of importance is to go to the synagogue and say, hey y'all, I'm a Jew like y'all, I'm from Judea, I just came out of Judaism, I'm a Christian now, here's why I'm a Christian, here's why you should be a Christian. And most of the time, the synagogues en masse said, we don't accept that and we're not only gonna reject you, we're angry at you. And, and that's why it often turned violent. Island. Back in Acts 13, at the end of that story, it says that they stirred up uh, and, and, and tried to persecute uh, Paul and Barnabas. That's what it says in Acts 13, verse 50. They rose up in persecution against Paul and Barnabas and expelled them from the town. So clearly the Jews weren't just saying no thank you, but they were angry at Paul for, for even mentioning or, or even expecting them to believe this. So clearly what he was preaching was not just wrong in their opinion, it was offensive. 
right? I don't think you get angry and want to stone somebody just because you disagree with them. <laughs> you get angry and want to stone somebody because they offend you in an egregious way. And, and to the Jewish people, stoning was a way of condemning heretics. So when we read about in Acts that they wanted to stone Paul, that happened at the end of Acts 13. It happens here in um, Acts 14 verse 5. So these Jewish communities want to stone Paul and Barnabas because they believe they are heretics and, and that's a pretty strong thing to throw at someone, especially someone like Paul, who's preaching from their Bible. So we'll talk about that in a minute. But uh, I, I want to talk about the scenario that we see on repeat throughout the next couple chapters of Acts. Paul goes to the Jews. They reject the gospel. But then he quickly goes to the Gentiles. He even said back in Acts 13, lo, we turn to the Gentiles. And, and clearly they responded with great urgency and great anticipation uh, and interest. So we see this for the next couple of chapters in Acts. The Jews say no, Gentiles say yes. So first off, I, I want to I understand or I want to help us understand why the Jews, of, and when I say Jews, I don't mean all Jews in all time and all places. I mean the Jews in this generation or in this area. Uh, of course, it apply, it lingered throughout history. But uh, when I want to talk about, I want us to understand why the Jews so staunchly rejected Paul's message. More specifically, why they rejected Jesus. Why did the Jews reject Jesus? Why did they reject the gospel? Why did they want to stone Paul? It, it really comes down to their disagreement with what Paul said to them um, when he preached to them. And, and back in chapter 13, verse 38 and 39, we kind of get the, the simple summation of the gospel in the way it would have offended the Jews the most if that makes sense. So he preaches how Jesus was the fulfillment of the Old Testament. He goes through Abraham, he goes through Moses, he goes through David, and he says, this is where Jesus came from. This is why you should believe in him. But verses 38 and 39 of 13, that really summarizes and captures why they rejected Jesus so violently, really. Let's read those verses. Paul says, let it be known to you, brethren, that through this man is preached, that's Jesus, through Jesus it's preached to you the forgiveness of sins. Why would someone reject that? Verse 39, and by him everyone who believes. That's a big word. It's a big phrase. Everyone who believes is justified from all things from which you could not be. Now, Paul makes it, he takes it personal. He says, you Jewish people who believe you are justified by your works and your obedience to the law of Moses, that is not possible. But by faith in Jesus Christ, all who believe can be justified from the things the law says they have fallen short of. So in, a, in, a, in, in, in a, the simplest way I can explain it, here at number five, the biggest fear of the Jews was this. And if this doesn't sit right with you, I'll explain it to you, I promise. The biggest fear for the Jews was, based on what we just read, it seemed to them that Christianity threatened to dismantle everything the Old Testament established in terms of their religion, it seemed to threaten to dismantle everything the Old Testament established and that set the Jews apart from the rest of the world. Now, when they hear verse 38 and 39, and the reason why they're so angry and violent towards Paul is it's in their mind, and I'm not saying that they heard it right, but clearly they didn't, but in their opinion, the gospel and this message of Jesus and the church and Paul's message threatened to dismantle everything they had believed 
and it threatened to take away what made them so special and so much more important than everybody else. Now, you think, well, that, just, that's not, that, that wouldn't have happened, but we'll explain why this was so, they were so sensitive to this. Here's why, verse number six, is, is why they did not like Christianity, the way it was preached and the way it is. Christianity was not about exalting one nation over another. And they believed that their nation was greater than all other nations. And they didn't like this idea that everybody all of a sudden was invited in. What do you mean all people? What do you mean everybody? What do you mean anybody who believes? Huh, not the way we read it in the Old Testament. Only one nation gets in. And we're that nation and we don't want anybody else in. And this was kind of what they had cultivated in their religion. Not what was intended, but what happened. See, Christianity was not about exalting one nation over another. It was not about gloating in one's own righteousness as the Jews had made it or has made their religion. And it was not about segregating from the rest of the world. So the reason why the Jews rejected Christianity is because their version of religion was about exalting themselves over another, was about gloating in their own self-righteousness, and was about segregating from the rest of the world, as in we don't want anything to do with anybody that's not like us. That's what religion does to any nation, but the Jewish people took it to a, to a very extreme. Now let's talk about this. Don't worry, it's very important, even for us in our age, First off, Christianity was a threat to the exceptionalism that the Jews had began to rely on and boast in. Christianity was a threat to the exceptionalism that the Jews had began to rely on. Now, let me address this delicately, lest somebody mishear me. Israel was and is God's chosen nation through which he has and will work tremendous deeds that have and yet will change the world in its history. God chose Israel, of course, because they were the least of all nations to make the biggest example and the biggest you know, showcase of his own power against the world. But that never meant and doesn't mean that God only chose Israel. This is where it begins to be a little tense from Old to New Testament transition. In fact, we believe and know that the New Testament teaches that God's choice of Israel was a move so that he might reach the rest of the world. Isaiah 49, 6 says, God says, it's too light a thing that you should be my servant to raise up the tribes of Jacob and bring back the preserved of Israel. I will make you as a light for the nations, for all nations, that my salvation may reach the ends of the earth. We know it from the story of the Exodus. God told Moses, I'm doing this so that the whole world may know that I am is the Lord, that Yahweh is the Lord. Now, you have to understand, the ancient world was all about one nation ruling over another. It was all about one God dueling against the other. So Israel became very possessive of its God. The other nations were possessive of their God. Israel was no different. So no nation was ever attempting to win converts. You never read about a Jewish missionary in the ancient world or today's world because they didn't want anyone who wasn't of their heritage. In fact, the nations believed the gods were tied to the very land itself, which is why in the ancient world, you couldn't worship the Jewish God if you did not live in the Jewish land. Now, eventually they lost, they, they, they moved past that because as they spread around the world, they realized, hey, we have to figure out some way to do it. But this is a unique story. I've got it here in your notes. 
if you've ever read the story of Naaman, if you wonder why Naaman makes this request of Elisha, this might help you understand it. In, in 2 Kings 5, Naaman says, if not, please let there be given for your servant two mule loads of earth, for from now on your servant will not offer offerings to any other god. Why, you know why Naaman wanted to take dirt back with him to, 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 to Syria? Because Naaman believed the way the world worked was he couldn't worship the Jewish God unless he was on the Jewish God's dirt. So he wants to take the dirt back with him. And Elisha kind of winks at him and says, yeah, go ahead. But Elisha says, one day we'll figure out this isn't how it has to happen. But we see how religion makes everything about place and time so extreme for the Jews that they had to have the literal dirt of the Jewish territory for them to believe that God could actually hear them. Now, even the Jews moved on beyond that. But I wanted to, see, wanted to show you just how kind of narrow they, they saw things. It was all about our nation and our territory and our location and our heritage. And otherwise, there's no way to get in. God never sanctioned those sorts of thoughts. That was the result of man and religion. Now, I think it's important to remember the story of Jonah because the story of Jonah is really about the Jews struggling, sharing their God with other people. Isn't it true? That God told Jonah to go and preach the good news of salvation to the enemies of Israel. And Jonah said, no chance. I don't like those people. And I know you, God, you are too good and too nice to people. If I go and share the good news that if they believe in you, they'll be saved, you'll actually do it. So I'm not going. And you know how that works out. Jonah gets swallowed by the whale because he jumps off the boat because he's afraid God's going to punish the sailors for him. Jonah knows he's in the wrong, but then he gets spit out of the whale. He goes and preaches to Nineveh, and we don't ever like to read the last chapter of Jonah because it kind of ends on a bummer. But what happens? He looks over the city, and he's angry that God spares the Ninevites. And he says, God, why would you love people like that? They're not like me which is more than just the Jewish thing. It's a self-righteous thing, right? Now, the Jewish exile made the Jews more sensitive to losing their exclusive connection to both God and land because when the Jews were taken to Babylon and when they get brought back home, not all of them got back home. So many of them were scattered around the world because the way the world began to change and the way the Greeks and the Romans began to repopulate the earth, repopulate the world after the Babylon and Persian empires, many Jews didn't go back home. So that's where the synagogues come from. And that's where these little Jewish communities and these little Jewish towns come from as they scattered around the world. And this was very difficult. And I want to say this with respect because we don't know what this is like. This was very difficult for the Jews because as they were scattered, they lost their identity. And as they lost their identity, they began to fear that what made them different and what made them belong and what made them feel safe and made them feel eternally at rest, they lost that because they had been told as a people, it's about your race, it's about your heritage, it's about your land, it's about your time and place. So I put it here at number 10, they feared a loss of identity regarding their nationality and their tribal nature and their factions within their tribes. And isn't that what really operates every nation? A fear of if we don't get our way, something might change and we want to make sure that we get our way, right? And that's what drives politics. It's what drives nationalities. And that's just part of the living in this world. So the reason why the Jews were very wary of this, anyone can get in, is because they saw their own identity being on the line. 
And all of a sudden, as Gentiles were coming in and as they were, it was becoming a global thing, they rejected any idea that God loved someone besides them. But I hope you can see what's going on here. What the gospel brought to them and to everyone was that there's something better than a nationality and there's something better than a race and there's something better than these worldly labels that we think give us confidence and comfort but actually don't. Don't you see the bigger picture that was starting to form that the Jews were so scared of letting go of what they knew they never got a hold of what was better. So after the return to the land, the, these Jewish communities like that we read about in Acts, they, they felt the message of Christianity threatened to take away what they had found their identity in, what they found had given them their brand. But don't you see and don't you know that Christianity was from the very beginning a way to disrupt the way the world worked and the way the world tries to define us. Colossians 3, here in your notes, Colossians 3 says, There is not Jew nor Greek, circumcised nor uncircumcised, barbarian nor Scythian, slave nor free. What is the message of the gospel? Is there is a better identity that we can find a belonging in. That it's better than time and place, nationality, and the labels of this world. That scared the Jews because for years that was all they had believed in. But there was something better. And the reason why so many Greeks and Romans clung to the gospel is because many on the bottom parts of the society in the Roman Empire, they were cast out of the, of the Roman who's who's. They knew they would never make it in the Roman Empire in terms of who was successful and who was powerful. And the gospel gave them a chance. And the gospel welcomed them in when the Roman God said, we don't want you in. 1 Corinthians 12 says, For in one spirit we were all baptized into one body, Jew, Greek, slave, free. We're all made to drink of the same spirit. Now, if you know the Old Testament, that's how the Old Testament saints believed. I've got this passage here from Hebrews. We looked at it the other night. You can read this passage where Hebrews tells us the Old Testament saints never believed that their identity is what saved them. They never believed that they found their belonging and where they were from and what land they had and what their race inherited. They believed all that was just a placeholder until something better came. At the end of that passage in Hebrews 11, it says God provided something better for us. That's what Christianity is. So while we can respect their fear, we must also admit that it was misplaced. It was. And we must also confront the similar tendencies within us to find our identity in things of this flesh. Because you know why this, this is relevant for us? Because boy, do we as Americans struggle with this same thing, don't we? And we, should, we know better. <laughs> and we, have, we don't have any excuse. They had an excuse, but we don't. Now, it gets tricky because our flesh loves to find its identity in things granular, doesn't it? It digs its heels in things of this world. I think the application here in Acts is that we have the potential, as they did, to truly forget what defines us and what better defines us. So, number 14, I got... I put it this way, we must not allow anything to become more defining or more rewarding than our belonging to Christ and his kingdom. Now that, that can be a little bit convicting whenever we start looking over our shoulders at what we lean on and rest in and where we find our de definitions and our belonging or sense of belonging from. What this does is it breaks down barriers that often divides us and it unites us around greater things. And, and, and what, makes them, what divides us most as people in our country 
are those things, those lesser barriers, those lesser labels. Now, the Jews of the first century were all about self-righteousness. They boasted in Moses' law and their own ability to work around or work off their sins. I've got here on the next page a couple of passages that are important to to help understand where they were coming from, but also to show how Christianity is completely against that sense of self-righteousness. We looked at this scripture a few weeks ago when Paul writes in Philippians 3 uh, where he talks about having confidence in his flesh, but then he realized that none of that made a difference and none of that actually helped him, but actually it was holding him back. And he writes about how he counts those things as loss and he suffered the loss of all things that he might gain something greater, that he might be found in Christ and Christ be found in him. Paul says that Christ attaches us from ourself and attaches us to better promises and gives us a genuine righteousness because our righteousness is nothing but filthy rags. At the core, this is what's going on here between Paul and the the Jews. They could not let go of the idea that they brought something to the table. And church, if we're not careful, we may repeat their same mistakes. And if we're being honest, we've already repeated those same mistakes again and again, haven't we? Think about all the stuff that we allow to define us besides Jesus. We are tempted by all the things that they were. And maybe even worse, we've created factions and divisions within Christianity, haven't we? We, we justify ourselves with denominational flags. We boast in our own righteous contributions to the game. We're like that Pharisee in Luke 18 that said, Thank you, Lord, that I'm not like him. I've done all these things that make me better. And of course, Jesus said that man was not righteous at all. One time, a, a, a man told me, I know I'm going to go to heaven, and, and I'm not trying to knock somebody, but i, I got to share this because this is scary. A man told me that had sat in church for over 70 years at this point, that he knew he was going to go to heaven because he'd never voted for the wrong people, and he never committed any immoral sins. How in the world could someone that had heard the gospel for 70 years say something like that? Now, should Christians behave like Christians? Of course they should. But should Christians trust in anything or anyone but Jesus to define them? God help us, no. But it slips into our theology, doesn't it? It slips into our faith, doesn't it? Nothing in our hands we bring simply to the cross we cling. Alistair Begg, one of the greatest preachers of our generation, he preaches the gospel so powerfully yet so yeah, in ways that, that is beyond my mere abilities to get it out. I want to share an illustration that he preached one time in a message where he talks about how we're saved by faith alone. He talks about how if we don't hear the gospel again and again, and we don't remind ourselves of the cross again and again, if we don't keep our eyes on the cross, we will attempt to add our own works to faith. We will attempt to say it's faith plus what I've done. He talks about how if someone were to ask us, how do you know you're saved? How do you know that you're going to heaven? If we even begin to think to answer that question, well, I have done this or I have believed this, we already went wrong. Because it's not what we have done. It's what God has done and only what God has done. He calls our attention to the thief on the cross who maybe didn't even know Jesus' name. But in his desperation, he cried out for help from a man who possessed confidence in the face of death like no one else. 
He asked Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. Clearly, you know God like no one has ever known him. Clearly, the only chance of finding rest before God is in the work that you're doing. Alistair remarks that if pressed by the angels in paradise, if asked, sir, how did you get here? The thief would have simply replied, the man on the middle cross said I could come. That's it. Nothing in our hands we bring simply to the cross. And it's not really that we cling to it, is it? Is that he clings to us. Come on, church, this is our only hope and should be our only identity. In Christ, we find what we cannot find in and of ourselves or in this life. And, and you know what this sort of clarity gives us in regards to our mission as a church? Do you know what it gave Paul and his mission and his team as they were on the mission? They were committed to integrating themselves into society rather than separating or segregating themselves. And this is such a big deal. They weren't trying to stay away from people. They were trying to integrate within society so that they might reach those people. There was never a sense of we're better than them, never a sense of they don't belong with us or we don't belong with them. Paul believed that as Christians, we were called to mingle and reach people where they are at. Of course, not participate in their sins, but take the gospel to them. How else do you think they managed to reach the Gentiles? Because they didn't keep it to themselves. They immersed themselves in a world that had no other hope. And that was, a, that was not the way the Jews had done it. This is on display in the passage that we read tonight. As divided as the world was around them, they were united to spread the gospel within them. And that's why I wanted to bring your attention in closing to chapter 14, verse 1. Maybe this isn't that big of a deal to you, but it is so big. This statement at the end of verse 1, both, or it, it says, a great multitude, both of Jews and Gentiles or Greeks believed. I want, to, I want you to know how monumental that, that that threshold is. Ever since Pentecost, it's been all about reaching the world, but it was all about, well, we, we, kinda, we want to reach the world, but we kind of think it's all about Jews and all about Israel and all about Judea. We think we'll get to the world one day. And all along, there's been this two steps forward, one step back, two steps forward, one step back. Can we really reach the world? Should we really go to the world? And now here in Acts 14, as many Greeks believe as do Jews in a new town and it says a great multitude both and I've got to think when Luke wrote this verse he grins from ear to ear when he writes both Jews and Greeks don't you see the the, the picture here for a long time it was well Jews believed because they had the heritage and many didn't but there were still more Jews that were going to believe than Gentiles but over time it began to kind of even out and at this point the Gentiles believed on the same clip as the Jews believed. And by the time we get to Acts 15, it was Gentiles even more believing than Jews. And by the time we get to the end of the book of Acts, it's Gentiles all over the world begging to get in. Why? Because the church immersed itself in a society. They integrated themselves in a society. If we would wrap our hearts and minds around this church, this threshold that we cross in Acts 14 should not go 
undernoticed. A great multitude, both of Jews and of Greeks. Up until this point, it's been some Greeks. Read, read through the book of Acts again. Some Greeks, a few Greeks, a couple of Hellenists or Gentiles, but now a great multitude, both of Jews and Greeks. I mean, think about this. As recent, in, as, as recent as Acts 10, Peter is on record saying, no, God, I'm not going to go to Cornelius' house. He's unclean. I mean, as recent as four chapters ago, the leader of the church was on record saying, I told God no. And look what God had did in that short period of time when the church bought in to the full gospel and the full plan. They integrated themselves. They trusted in a greater identity. They found a true and certain righteousness. At the end of your notes, I've got here a passage from John 17 that we looked at last year during election season, but it's appropriate even more so for us in our world uh, for as Christians as we think about what unites us and what divides us. I hope that you'll read this passage in retro- in, as you reflect on this message going forward. In that passage, Jesus prays for the church, the early church and us. And he prays about how I am sending them into the world, not to be like the world, but to show the world who I am. And he writes and, and he talks about how it's so important that we are united on these truths so that we might show the world who he is. And he writes about how it's so important that we are looking for ways to unify ourselves against those barriers or against those blocks, against those things that we let get in the way, that we do not allow things like self-righteousness and this sense of pride we find in this world to get in the way of what can define us, what should define us. Church, we have found a better belonging in Christ. There's a world of people out there that need to know they can find one too. Clearly there was opposition in Paul's day, but that opposition wanes as they double down on their efforts. If we're faithful in our mission towards the world, we can learn that while there is still a lot that divides us, Christ can and wants to unite all of us around his better promises so that we might point to a kingdom to come where we will all come together under him, under his better belonging. Church, I pray that we'll allow this to challenge us, but also comfort us knowing that so much has already been, everything's already been done for us. The work, the efforts, the measures it takes to get us where we need to be. It's about us resting in this new identity, finding this better belonging and going to the world and finding ways to integrate ourselves into a world that may not seem to be a lot like us, but when it counts and where it matters most, can find the same grace that we found and can begin to see in Christ the same Savior that we have trusted in and find that better belonging. Church, thank you so much for being here with us tonight. I pray this would help us and give us something to reflect on over the next couple of days and give us something to be thankful for. Uh, As blessed as we are, we can strive to be uh, more like Christ in this early church. Let me pray for you. Father, thank you for this reminder 
of the struggles that the ancient world had in accepting and believing the gospel. But also, Lord, thank you for showing just the monumental breakthroughs that took place when people got their arms around it and when people began to live out these truths like you made it so clear to them. Lord, thank you for the, the, the nation of Israel and all that they did in the ancient world and how it all came through them, uh, the hope that we have. But Lord, thank you that you make this distinction between what religion did to them and what the gospel offered to the whole world. God, thank you for showing us that there is a hope and there is a faith. There is level and equal ground for all who believe. Thank you for giving us a better identity and a better belonging in Christ. Thank you for saving us from religion and self-righteousness. Thank you for giving us a better place to find ourselves and to find true life and salvation. Lord, help us as your people to integrate ourselves into society, to integrate ourselves into the world, and not separate or segregate, but to love each other as you have loved us and unite with each other as you have united us with Christ. Lord, that we might be able to make a difference in a world where we often give up. God, thank you so much. May you bless all of your people tonight. Use us to change the world once again. In Jesus' name we pray and ask. Amen.